Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight Podcast, your home for interviews with authors, illustrators, editors, and other industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. I'm your host, Sam Saddam, joined by my colleague, Chad Hinson. How are you doing, Chad? I'm doing good, Sam. How are you doing? I'm all right. We've got two guests today, children book author and writing coach, Renee Berry, and a traditionally published author, Stephen Rowley. First, Chad, how was your Valentine's Day? Oh, man, my Valentine's Day could have been better. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't actually find anywhere to go with my date. So, you know, just a little at home cooking is what I ended up doing. So what you could have done was make a reservation with one of Philly's very own local bookstores. The Head in the Hand in the Kensington neighborhood is renting out their shop for candlelit dinners. You get a discount for any books you decide to buy at the end. And they're working on partnering with local restaurants to make it a whole experience. Yeah, man, I read about that. And I, honestly, I wish I knew while it was Valentine's Day, I definitely would have took my date there. We'd have had a great time. All right. Well, I don't want to get in her way, but we could walk there from my house. <laughs> it's uh, hopefully not too hot out, though, because their next opening is in August. Yeah, and no, I'll definitely be sure to visit as soon as they reopen. Let's get to an interview. I talked to Renee Barry. She's got four books with us already. And she mentioned that she purposefully makes books that her kids would be able to see themselves in, hopefully giving them a better perspective. Growing up, my mother, um, she she always used to say if she had $5 left in her pocket, she was going to buy us a book. And if she could find a book with people or characters that looked like us, that definitely was coming home with us, you know? And I think it's important for children to see um, images in books of all different kinds of children, um, whether it be black or Asian or white or, or anything. I just think it's important for them to see all different types of people. Um, and I want to be a part of, um, I want to give kids the opportunity to see themselves, to see for black children to see themselves in, in um, what they read as well in picture books. It's funny, I think there was some kind of um, report that said, that there was there were more picture books with actual animals or like monsters or non-humans than there were with even humans. So it's it's funny. It's like we're starting from scratch to begin with. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's important. You know, my I you know obviously we read other things besides what I've written, and I always try to find books that have um, a diverse um, character set in them so that my kids can see all different types of people and see themselves especially and know that, um, hey, they can, they can do things too. They can be featured in books and, you know, they can see themselves in literature. Yeah, I actually think it's very interesting how she talks about having representation. Um, very important, no matter what color you are, to, you know, see people that look like you and act like you in the books that you read in the media that you consume. It just makes for a better experience. So I definitely agree with Renee. Yeah, absolutely. And she has to make those decisions. It's an illustrated book and all her choice, of course, because it's self-publishing. If you want control of your outcome, self-publishing is what you need to do because you can choose anything. I mean, even down to your illustrator, like I'm very particular on my of, of who I choose to illustrate my books because I want, you know, I want things like I want the, the Afro textured hair to be accurate and I want the skin tones to be accurate and you know I had that control whereas I don't think I'd have that kind of control if I um, went another publishing route 
but when you're doing your own your own graphics, your own illustrations, like, you know, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want, not pretty much. You can do whatever you choose. So how would you try to find an audience for this book? Well, yeah, um, she mentions uh, in the interview how, you know, she wants this book to go out to teachers and like homeschool care providers and the parents of younger children. And so I would kind of start there because I think that would be the largest audience. And then I would kind of and then I would, you know, do and statements. So, OK, this has to be a teacher or, or a homeschool care provider or a parent of younger children and also be interested in things like possibly black history or, you know, equality, because it seems like she's adamant about getting this book in the hands of everyone, but specifically, you know, black kids who may want the representation. And so I would do something along along those lines as well. And then they will also have to be interested in children's literature. And I think that would be a really like specific niche audience that would be very impactful for her book. When we have that, you know, where, where would you start? What, what's the number one uh, characteristic that you would start with? Um, so I, Personally, would start with parents of younger younger children or teachers or homeschool care providers. And that's just because I like to start with what I think would be my largest audience. And so I feel like if I put that in, I would be able to get at least three million people. And then I would like to kind of narrow it down from there. And we would have we'd be able to do that combination of or statements and then add things on top of that. Right. Yeah, I think that maybe we should define organic versus paid social advertising. So yeah, give, our, give our audience a primer on that. Okay, so um, or organic advertising is just anything that is free. So if you have an Instagram or a Facebook account and you decide to post a certain amount of posts that lead people up to the release of your, your book, that's organic because you're not paying anything for it. Versus paid social advertising is what you would do on Facebook or Instagram if you wanted to show your your organic post to a group of people who otherwise wouldn't be able to see it. Um, Boosting the ads and putting money behind it. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I I think there's advantages to both. And I think that as a a book author, uh, you would want to implore both strategies into your marketing plan. So she mentions it takes up a large part of her time, but the self-publishing gives her a lot of control. Right. Well, you know, it's it, that is true. It can take a lot of time, um, especially if you're starting out and you don't already have a following. Um, I had a following of people that um, know that I write, have purchased my books before, and, um, you know, I kind of prepped them and I let them know, hey, I'm coming out with something soon. Be ready. Be on the lookout. So that does help. Um, but if you are starting off you know, without a following, it it may help to run some ads or just to start following people that um, are uh, really into books, really into um, children's literature or whatever subject. I don't know. Not everybody writes children's books, but whatever you're into, if it's sci-fi, you might start to build a community of sci-fi readers. And um, I know for me in particular, um, it really did help to to get into the community of teachers and um, homeschoolers, homeschool moms. Um, you know, you kind of have to dig deep, but with some planning, um, I think the the time goes into the planning, but the execution is quick. Renee really loves self publishing. Clearly, uh, the idea of media gatekeepers is really as old as media, but the gates are coming down. 
Yeah, I think that's the beauty of, you know, places like like bookshop and bookstore where as an independent author, you can take your career into your own hands and no one gets to tell you what you can and can't publish. I did get a chance to talk to somebody else who published through traditional channels and managed to get through those gatekeepers. Uh, it's Stephen Rowley. His third book is due out in May. It's called The Gunkle, and it's being released through G.P. Putnam & Sons, a, a penguin imprint. Stephen really emphasized the long lead time and lack of control as a traditional publisher as one of the drawbacks. One advantage that self-publishing can have is you have much more control over uh, the process and getting something to print or out to readers much quicker. Traditional publishing has such a long lead. Um, I'd say usually from the time of acquisition that uh, it could be anywhere from 18 to 24 months before your book comes out. Um, there's a lot of decisions that go in that when you're with a big publisher, you know, they have a catalog. They've got to position your title around the other books that they're putting out to make sure that they're not, uh, you know, that not only it's the right slot for your book in the market at large, but that they're not also self-cannibalizing uh, another title of theirs that might be might, might be similar. So uh, I think originally the Gunkle was slated to come out last year, but at the time, at the time that decision was made, they were worried about competing against the Olympics in the summer of 2020 that never happened and two political conventions that never happened. And so it was actually pushed back before COVID. Uh, and it just sort of happened to be a, a, a nice accident, I think, for the book, because it was really hard. It was really hard to launch a book last summer, um, even though people are at home and have more time than ever to read if you're not in able to browse in bookstores, you sort of have to know what you're looking for. And so it's it's harder to discover newer writers that way um, when you don't have access to traditional sort of ways we find books. So did you have any say in that release date changing or that's entirely up to you? Uh, I, you know, authors with publishers often have contractually what's called meaningful consultation about things like cover design and release dates and whatnot. Now, take that to a court of law and try to define what that means exactly. <laughs> I think it's a polite way to say that they'll listen to the author's concerns um, and they certainly want the author to be happy, but um, I'm sort of lower on the totem pole when it comes to decisions like that. So meaningful consultation, that really cracked me up. It's an interesting term of art. Uh, like Stephen says, I, I don't know how you would prove that and probably just comes down to how much leverage the author has and whether or not they're willing to push the publisher on the topic. Uh, you know, J.K. Rowling gets to decide what font to use, while a mid-level genre fiction author might have less say. You know, I, I commend anyone who is capable of going through that back and forth with any major publisher. I am all for independent. I am all for creative control. And this just sounds like uh, like a headache, honestly. And keep in mind, he's on his third attempt and still doesn't feel like he has uh, the kind of control he would have. Uh, right. But he did talk about his first book, which he considered self-publishing. My first book was a novel called Lily and the Octopus. And it was a story about um, uh, uh, basically a, a man who wakes up one morning to, to discover that a small octopus had affixed itself to his dog's head, which might sound strange. Uh, but uh, at the time, I, you know, my dog had a brain tumor, which resulted in a sort of large lump on her head. And I was sort of just starting to play around with writing with that and what that trauma had been. Uh, for me and dealing with that. And I realized almost immediately what I was writing about was attachment and how difficult it can be to let go. Um, and so there was something about having a tentacular 
metaphor, you know, that, that octopus that uh, could have a, like a literal stranglehold on you that made sense to me, but it, but it was a weird, um, you know, it's a, perhaps a weird metaphor for some. So uh, I didn't really have high hopes that that book would um, find a wide audience, but I was very proud of it as a piece of writing. So um, after a year of trying to find a traditional publisher for it or for an agent to take it on and getting rejected uh, almost universally everywhere, if you, if you wanna hear, you know, crickets on the other end of a telephone, a call New York publishing agents and and see if they will read your book about a dog with an octopus on its head. <laughs> and so you won't get you, really past reception. You actually have to call? I, I just assumed that you well, were uh, yeah. uploading a document. I think, it's, yeah, I think it's more done in a, in a query letter. Uh, but uh, but you know what I mean. Uh, so I was actually going to self self-publish that book because in the end I thought, you know what, even if it's just something singular that that speaks to me and, and maybe it might find a small audience, but I, but I was proud of it and I'd worked really hard on it and I thought um, I want to be able to get it out uh, get it out some way. And I came very, very close to self-publishing it. And in fact I had I had hired, you know, done all the things that you that you might do to self-publish. I, I hired a graphic designer to do a cover design. I hired a company that did the, the layout um, for an e for an ebook, um, you know, and to get a, I, I'd gotten an ISBN number and and all these sort of steps that you take when self publishing before through a sort of strange series of events that actually ended up on the desk of somebody at Simon and Schuster who who ended up acquiring the book. So that whole thing was a surprise to me. Anybody to the fact that anybody read that book, uh, was a surprise to me. And it, it went on to be a national bestseller and it was translated in 20 languages and there's a movie in, in the work. So, so the whole thing is a surprise to me. Uh, but yeah, I, there, there are people who, um, who I've become friendly with uh, that I never expected to read my book. Other writers that I admire, um, the great writer uh, uh, Isabel Allende is a fan of Lily and the Octopus and has mentioned it in several interviews that she's done. And I've never met her, but but the fact that she is out there talking about my book when she's somebody that I've read, you know, since high school and have have been in awe of, um, you know, that's that's crazy to me. Um, the singer uh, Rob Thomas of the lead singer of Matchbox Twenty um, really loves Lily and the Octopus and invited me to his show. Um, as his guest and to meet him backstage and stuff. So it, it's crazy the the way that books can connect uh, people. It's always a, a real thrill. Yeah, I would say, I mean, Lily and the Octopus was definitely a very personal story and that that really showed through the entire way. It resonated just the, with loss. I recommend that our entire audience read that, preferably when their pets are healthy to avoid <laughs> any sort of emotional triggers, uh, yeah. or just skip like the last chapter or so and just yeah. Move. If you sort of stop on page around two fifty or so, the book actually has a happy ending. It's just yeah, you just put it down before you get to the last third. <laughs> uh, so I think it's a happy ending. I, I think you know. I know people are afraid of it, or the, or they'll say you know, I uh, am I going to cry? And I'm like, I you know, I. I don't know. I don't know you. I don't know you, what kind of heart you have, but uh, I hope you will laugh. I do think it's a funny book uh, too. So <laughs> for yeah. sure, I mean, laugh. But, it, laugh. but it's a good lesson when you try to think of what the right route is, whether it's self-publishing or trying to trying to search for a more traditional um, corporate publisher. Um, you know, I don't. I, the The important thing is to learn how to talk about your work. I probably would have gotten further if instead of describing it as a book about a dog with an octopus on its head, 
instead saying it's a book about how we get stuck in our lives and how sometimes we see the obstacles in our way can be entirely exaggerated or, or even made up. And, and that's something more universal. So sometimes it's an issue of learning to talk about our work, but also it's important not to discount our work. I spent a lot of time thinking self-publishing was my only route for that book because I thought, well, if you didn't know me or you didn't know this dog personally, like who cares? And as, as writers, the voices inside our head that devalue our own work um, are very loud uh, and they can be very persistent. And, and as part of our job as writers, I think, to, to try to silence those, those voices. So, so never think that your story is too small or too unique or too personal. I guarantee if it means something to you, it will mean something to someone else. And it's just a matter of connecting the right pathways and choosing the right journey for, for the book. Strong words of encouragement there for all of our authors. Uh, Lily and the Octopus is a very unique and specific story, but the universal themes really shine through. Since that was his first book, it, it's likely more analogous to where our authors may be. So let's talk about how it could be marketing. We got dog heavy content. Obviously, that's always a plus on the social media. We got an LGBTQ author, uh, debut literary fiction. How else can he stand out? I mean, you you named a lot of them. So like like LGBTQ, that's like huge on on Facebook. There's a large audience for that. And dogs this is probably way like in in, in like upwards of a hundred million plus people who like those. So I would start with those two because those are the biggest. Then add little nuances about his book. Like he mentioned uh, that he wants people to take humor away from it. So I would probably narrow it through humor, family, things like that. And then ultimately whatever the interest targeting that I use, the person must also like books and eBooks, assuming that, you know, he's releasing his book paperback and through Kindle. So his second book, The Editor, is a fictionalized version of a writer who ends up with Jackie Kennedy working on her book. For anybody who may not remember, Jacqueline uh, Kennedy and then married uh, Aristotle Onassis. Um, and after he died- I don't remember, by the way. In the, <laughs> in, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, after he died in the mid 70s or, or so, she went on to have a career in book publishing. She was an editor with Doubleday at a big publishing house. And she had this very prolific sort of 15 year career. When she was done with the spotlight, she sort of put her head down, walked to work every day, um, pub edited more than 100 titles. Um, so this was a, this was a long career. This is a sort of incredible third act to her life. And it's not something that's among the top 10 things that we remember about her because it was a very private time in her life too. I thought it was fascinating and I, I wanted more people to know about this part of her. Um, when, she, when she died, her son, um, John Jr., JFK Jr. came out and made a statement to the press that her, his mother had passed away surrounded by her family uh, and her books. And, and that really said to me, you know, like the important things in her life, like how, how important books were to her. So I wanted to, to create a story about a, a young writer in early 1990s New York who developed an unexpected friendship with her while she was working as, as an editor. Um, and so, but that's, that's very different than what I did with Lily and the Octopus, which was deeply personal. Um, here I had a real life historical figure that I was trying to make come to life on, on the page. Um, you know, when I was on tour for that book, I got a, a, a lot of questions, usually at every stop, someone asking, you know, do you have the right to, 
to do that. And that you sort of have to quickly ascertain if people are asking um, a legal question, you know, do you have the right to write about someone like that? Um, and she was, you know, Jackie O, as she was known then, it was the very definition of, of a public figure. You know, she's, she's an icon. Uh, so yes, you do have the right to write about that. There's a long history of novels with very famous real life characters uh, in them. Um, but, but, but more interesting to me, it's a moral question. You know, what gives you the right to do this? Uh, and every writer has to answer that differently. Uh, all I can say is that I did an incredible amount of research. I had a very supportive publisher who um, helped put me in touch with some of her former colleagues uh, who were kind enough to share memories of working with her. Um, I was able to speak to a writer who had been edited by her. So I took it as seriously as I possibly could, even reading books that she had edited around the time that my story takes place to try to forensically recreate what was on her desk, what other thoughts might have been in the forefront of her mind, what were her interests at that time. Um, but you know, any writer will tell you, you can do all the research in the world and a percentage of your depiction is going to be interpretation. You know, there's a percentage of, of the Jacqueline Onassis that's in my novel that is just, you know, what I'm, what I'm adding to all the research to make her come alive as a fully realized character on the page. But um, it's, it's hard work and something I took very seriously. And did you get any word from the Kennedys as to how they felt about the depiction? Uh, I, I haven't, um, I have not. So, you know, many people ask me if her daughter, Carolyn had read the book and stuff like that. And I, I felt a little weird sort of forcing a copy on her. Certainly there's been no shortage of people trying to, um, trade on the Kennedy name to, um, you know, for their own benefit. And I didn't want to feel sort of icky about that. I will say that, um, the singer Carly Simon uh, bought a copy from a, a bookstore on Martha's Vineyard. Um, Carly and Jackie were famously friends. In fact, Jackie had edited a series of children's books that Carly had written. Um, and Carly came out with her own memoir last year about working with Jackie. So I'm like, I feel like I'm inching, I'm inching closer, but we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, so any advice on how he can get his books into the hands of the Kennedys? No, but I do want to check out his book. What about you? Any recommendations before we go? Yeah, I'm currently reading Cubed by Nikhil Saval. It's an interesting look at how the concept of work has evolved. There's probably going to have to be some updates made now that all of us are working remotely. Yeah, he won't be able to. He was actually just elected to the state Senate last year, so he's going to be busy. But a lot of our book baby authors are sending their remote work manifestos our way, so it won't be too long. All right. Well, that will wrap it up for us. We'll be back next month for a new episode. Thanks to Renee Berry and Stephen Rowley both for joining me. Renee's books, including The Race That Humbled Rumble, The Humboldt Squid, is available on the Book Baby Bookshop. Stephen's not yet a Book Baby author, but I'll keep working on that. His book, The Gunkle, is scheduled for release this May. If you're interested in publishing with Book Baby, please reach out. We would love to hear from you. 877-961-6878 or info at bookbaby.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow the Book Baby Spotlight podcast. And until next time, stay safe, everyone.